It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, I'm not much for anniversary stories. I think they're kind of an artificial journalistic device, but I couldn't help but notice in scrolling through Twitter today that today is the 40th anniversary of the day that Ronald Reagan was shot. And I have pretty vivid memories of that day in 1981 because I was a rookie reporter uh, at the Washington Star, which no longer exists, but many of you, if you watch my live shots on Fox, you can see I have the the front page uh, frame of the final edition of the Star, uh, which actually went out of business later that year. And so I, as when this came over the police scanner, I was told to run out to my car and go to the hospital where the president had been taken. But we didn't know what hospital the president had been taken to. So I'm in my car driving, uh, turned on the AM radio, and was able to find out that the former president, who had been shot, of course, by John Hinckley, um, had been taken to the nearest hospital, which was George Washington University Hospital. So I'm there in the scrum outside, and Lynn Knopfziger, a Reagan aide, came out and briefed the press and said that Reagan was in, was in good spirits and uh, was, in, was in generally good condition. And then, I mean, this is way before the era of cell phones, uh, I had to find a way to get that information uh, to my editors. And so I went, so it's in a residential neighborhood. I literally knocked on doors and asked people if I could use their phone. And one woman said yes. And I came in and I thanked her profusely. And I called in the quotes uh, because the Star rushed out a special edition. It's an afternoon paper. Uh, so it always had editions uh, throughout the day. But this was a special edition, obviously, uh, blowing it out. And the next couple of days, um, I was able to track down two paramedics who rode in the ambulance with President Reagan, who revealed to me that he had lost far more blood than the White House uh, had acknowledged and that he had been in far worse shape initially uh, before the surgery uh, than the White House had admitted. And so this became, remember, um, my editors didn't quite trust the story, so they put it like on an inside page and then realized for later editions that this was a huge deal and put it out on the front page. Um, you know, this is before the web. This is before all of the technology we now take for granted. Uh, and it's, it's since been you know, acknowledged by uh, everybody involved that President Reagan was in more danger uh, initially. Uh, you know, of course, Reagan came out with a funny line that he had told Nancy, honey, I forgot to duck. And fortunately, he uh, was able to heal and go on to lead the country for uh, nearly eight more years. But I have very vivid memories of that day. Uh, Meanwhile, yesterday uh, was the first day of the trial in the killing of George Floyd out in Minneapolis and the police officer, former police officer, Derek Chauvin, on trial. I watched a lot of it. All three cable news networks uh, took a lot of this live, the judge in the case allowing this to be streamed. And I got to tell you, it was hard to watch. Um, The centerpiece of the prosecution's case, of course, was replaying this nine minute and 29 second video, which I don't think I'd ever seen the totality of it um, or even some of the close-ups. In any event, you know, watching that period of time when this guy's begging for his life and the officer has his knee on his neck, you know, which of course triggered racial protests, racial riots, uh, a a kind of a self-examination. And now finally the trial. And And, you know, like in any trial, I mean, he's entitled to a defense and 
his lawyers are trying to make the case that George Floyd was not an angel, and I don't think that's in dispute. I mean, remember, he'd been called, the cops had been called because uh, the convenience store had reported that he had stolen a pack of cigarettes and refused to give it back, and this guy had been had, had problems with drugs and all of that. But it seems to me that all of that doesn't really matter. What matters is what the police did to him, because you can't impose a death sentence on somebody over a stolen pack of cigarettes. I mean, it is every bit as much of an outrage as it was at the time. And the defense is making arguments like, because they're interviewing some of the bystanders who witnessed this, um, that the bystanders were a distraction. I'm sorry, I don't think that's going to fly. Now, I don't know what the jury will decide. Obviously, the eyes of not just Minneapolis, but the country are on what the verdict will be. But it is necessarily a painful retelling of this. You know, I think the one thing we can agree on is he should not be dead. He did not need to die. There was just an absolute callous disregard, whether it was legally murder or not, a cow or homicide or whatever the precise charges, a callous disregard for the life of a human being who said 27 times, I can't breathe. I mean, there were five police officers there. He's down on the ground. He can't resist. I know he, there was a lot about he was a big guy. He was an intimidating guy. He can't resist arrest at that point. And why this happened just, it just continues to be an absolute tragedy. All right. One uh, kind of amusing item, in my view, has to do with uh, police in Italy tracking down a, a fugitive, a guy who was a member of a gang who was hiding out in the Dominican Republic. And the way that they found this alleged mafia member, a former mafia member, whose name is Mark Ferren Claude Biart, is that he uploaded a cooking video to YouTube. And he was savvy enough to hide his face, but according to the story, he failed to disguise his body tattoos. So the cops figured out where he was, because he's, I don't know, he's cooking lasagna or whatever he's doing, on his YouTube video, and he has now been extradited back to Italy. All right, let's get down to business here. Uh, story number one, an extraordinarily personal attack by former President Donald Trump on Anthony Fauci and Deborah Birx. And this fits into a whole, we're going to spend a lot of time here talking about COVID because there is a whole new debate right now about where we are with COVID, whether we are risking a fourth surge, how the vaccines are doing. But this is, you know, your classic blast from the past. Now, what triggered this on the part of the former president who put out this blistering statement is that CNN had a documentary special in which... Um, Deborah Burks, who was the coordinator of his coronavirus task force, was interviewed. Uh, Fauci, of course, has been getting interviews all along. And while Burks is out of government service, Fauci, of course, is President Biden's you know, chief medical advisor, or at least chief coronavirus advisor in effect. And so this is such, such Trumpian language. Uh, because of their interviews, I felt it was time to speak up about these two self-promoters trying to reinvent history to cover for their bad instincts and faulty recommendations. Now, look, it's fine for Trump to fight back. He says, you know, the, the, I, I closed down travel from China and they were opposed to that. And I don't know if that's quite true or not. Putting millions of lives at risk. We developed American vaccines by an American president in record time. Okay, so he's partially, you know, trying to um, protect his legacy as well, Fauci and Berg's move too slowly. For up to them, we'd be currently locked in our basements as our country suffered through a financial depression. All that seems fair to me. But then Trump says, 
in a fake interview on CNN, well, you can say CNN's fake. This is a real interview. They actually spoke to me, so on camera. We can look at the videotape. Uh, Trump has this thing about Fauci and baseball. Fauci, who said he was an athlete in college but couldn't throw a baseball even close to home plate. It was a roller. <laughs> Let me just stop there. So Anthony Fauci, whatever you think of his leadership on this issue, he's 78 years old. Last year, he was invited by the Washington Nationals to throw out the first pitch. And he didn't throw out a great first pitch. He misjudged it, like a lot of people have done. What does that have to do with whether he gave good advice on the uh, coronavirus or not? But, that you know, that's the kind of shot Trump loves to take. Uh, anyway, he goes on to say that Fauci tried to take credit for the vaccine when, in fact, he said it would take three to five years. Well, uh, Fauci, like a lot of people, was wrong about how quickly that these vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, could be developed. Now we have Johnson & Johnson as well. And I have said all along, and belatedly, the New York Times and the Washington Post have given Donald Trump credit for at least partial credit for the success of Operation Warp Speed. But he's turning it into an attack on Fauci. Uh, Fauci was incapable of pressing the FDA to move it through faster. I was the one to get it done. And even the fake news media knows and reports this. As I said, there have been recent reports in those big papers. Dr. Burks is a proven liar with very little credibility left, says the 45th president. Many of her recommendations were viewed as pseudoscience. Dr. Fauci would always talk negatively about her, so now he's getting into the behind the scenes. And in fact, would ask not to be in the same room with her. I never heard that. Uh, the states followed her lead, like California. The states who followed her lead uh, California had worse outcomes on COVID and ruined the lives of countless children because they couldn't go to school, ruled, ruined many businesses, and an untold number of Americans who were killed by the lockdowns themselves. That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, look, the whole business with the lockdowns and states, uh, led by both Republican and Democratic governors, a lot more complicated, I think, than Trump is laying out here. Dr. Burks was a terrible medical advisor, which is why I seldom followed her advice. Her motto should be, do as I say, not as I do. Who can forget when Dr. Burks gave a huge, huge mandate to the people of our nation to not travel? Well, she can't give a mandate, but she'd certainly advise that, as did the CDC, by the way. And then travel a great distance to see her family for Thanksgiving, only to have them call the police and turn her in. I don't think they called the police. Anyway, she then, embarrassingly for her, resigned. Uh, it seemed to me that she left during the transition because the Biden administration didn't want to hire her. Finally, Dr. Burke says she can't hear very well, but I can. There was no very difficult phone call. She I guess she's describing some difficult call to CNN with the president. Other than Dr. Burke's policies will have led us directly into a COVID-caused depression. All right, so that's, it's kind of like 100 tweets wrapped into one long statement. Now, what did they actually say in these interviews? Deborah Burks to CNN. I look at it this way. The first time, we have an excuse. There were about 100,000 deaths that came from that original surge. All the rest of them, in my mind, could have been mitigated or decreased substantially. Now, she doesn't mention Trump's name, but we all know who she's talking about. The federal government did not provide consistent messaging to the American people. And that is fault number one. Burks told CNN, uh, Fauci leveled his own criticism at Burks in the CNN documentary, saying she should have done more to push Trump to act. But he added that she did, quote, a lot of good and was in a difficult situation. Burks said she was the subject of a very uncomfortable call, here's what Trump was referring to, from the former president. 
Um, after she appeared on CNN last August to speak about the virus, Sanjay Gupta asked her if she was threatened or censored. She demurred and said someone, someone, I don't know who that would have been, had blocked her from speaking further on national television. My understanding was I could not be national because the president might see it. Now, Burke's getting a lot of criticism for this interview. I think she gets a lot more than Fauci because Fauci is seen. Remember, Trump talked about the baseball thing, and he was constantly needling or criticizing Fauci while Fauci was still there was even this whole speculation about would he fire Fauci, would he not fire Fauci? Obviously, he didn't. Uh, but at least Fauci was seen as a battler, and Burks was seen as sort of standing there, smiling during a lot of the coronavirus craziness, including uh, hydroxychloroquine and all of that. So uh, former network journalist Jeff Greenfield, among those tweeting, he says, the idea that Dr. Burks knew the White House was sending out false information on COVID and that Trump was intimidating her makes her performance last year particularly contemptible. She is not salvaging her reputation in latest interviews. She is burying it. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Let's move on to number two, which has to do with the debate about today. What do we do as the vaccines are ramping up, but we're not there. We're not even close to being there yet. All right. New York Times piece, President Biden facing a rise in coronavirus cases around the country. I'll have more on that in a second. Uh, yesterday called on governors and mayors to reinstate mask mandates. As the center, as the head of the CDC, this is Dr. Rochelle Walensky, warned of impending doom from a potential fourth surge of the pandemic. Impending doom. So she had a very emotional uh, comments at a briefing. She was actually fighting back tears, Dr. Walensky said she pleaded with Americans to hold on a little while longer, keep following the advice, wear masks, social distancing. You know, a lot of people are doing that, even in the states that have relaxed, at least to what I've read, even on the states that have officially relaxed these mandates. In other words, it's not required. But a lot of people are smart enough to continue to wear masks because we're not there yet. Um, she described a feeling of nausea when she was caring for patients at Mass General last year seeing the corpses of COVID-19 victims piling up. You know, obviously, if you've been on the front lines, as Rochelle Walensky has, this is a very, very emotional issue. Quote, I'm asking you to just hold on a little longer to get vaccinated when you can so that all the people that we all love will still be here when this pandemic ends. So much reason for hope, she said, but right now, I'm scared. And as this Times piece says, you know, with the warmer weather and a lot of people just sick and tired after a full year of having to hunker down, of not being able to live their lives the way they want to, um, virus cases have risen more than 40% in the last two years. Um, Washington Post story puts it this way. The seven-day average of new cases topped 63,000 for the first time in nearly a month, according to the paper's own data. States such as Michigan, Vermont, North Dakota reporting substantial spikes in new infections. Michigan led the nation with a 57% rise over the past week. The state which relaxed COVID-related restrictions earlier this month, and which has a Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, also reported the largest increase in coronavirus hospitalizations, which grew by more than 47%. So you have this sort of inflection point, if I can use that phrase. You know, the, the number of deaths is substantially down. But still, there have been a lot of days when uh, over 1,000 or over 1,200 Americans have died. 
you had the number of cases coming way down and plateauing, but now coming back up. I think the advent of spring and spring break has a lot to do with that. A lot of experts predicted that. You have certain um, Republican governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida, uh, Greg Abbott in Texas, who are saying, you know, we got to get the economy back. Uh, things are looking better, so we're lifting a lot of the restrictions on business and opening up. But, you know, New York State with Andrew Cuomo is opening up as well, not to the same extent, but certainly, you know, certain amount of indoor restaurant dining, for example. And it's hard to know. And so the mixed messages are going out. So you have President Biden saying, please, this is not politics. Reinstate the mandate. Biden says the failure to take this virus seriously is precisely what got us into this mess in the first place. You know, you rarely, you know, presidents try to project strength. You rarely see a president pleading with people, please, this is not politics. I have to differ on that point. It is politics. These are political decisions uh, being made by governors, by mayors, by county executives, and by presidents, this president, about what to do. Uh, I guess the Biden administration's feeling is if we could just get through the next couple of months without a surge, uh, we would be then in a position with more and more millions of doses going into arms where we would be closer at least to herd immunity. Um, Biden has now set a goal of 200 million shots in the end of the first 100 days. Originally, it's 100 million. But we're not there yet. And in certain states, there are a lot of people who want to get this vaccine and they're still not eligible. They're under 65. They don't have, they're not frontline workers. Uh, they don't have the necessary pre-existing conditions, but they want to get these shots. And New York is opening up to everybody next week. And so some states are, some states aren't. May 1st is the goal on that for all states, at least that set by Biden. All right, number three, Michael Gerson is a columnist for the Washington Post. He's a longtime conservative. He uh, is an anti-Trump conservative. And he's really, based on this column that I'm about to read to you, turned on the Republican Party. Gerson says it is a sign of a sickness deeper than COVID-19 that the defiance of public health guidance has become a political selling point in the Republican Party. So he starts out by talking about the governor, the Republican governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, speaking at CPAC last month. Uh, She's obviously buzzed about as a potential uh, 2024 candidate. Uh, She declared her proud resistance to basic virus control measures. She said, let me be clear, COVID didn't crush the economy. Government crushed the economy. South Dakota, she says, is the only state in America that never ordered a single business or church to close. We never instituted a shelter-in-place order. We never mandated that people wear masks. So she's bragging about this. And Gerson says, now let me be clear. South Dakota has the second highest case rate and the eighth highest COVID death rate in the country. In that sparsely populated state, the disease has taken the lives of nearly 2,000 people. And Nome's defiant inaction made that number higher than it should have been. And he questions, like, why would she be bragging about this? Now, in the not-so-distant past, according to Mike Gerson, uh, Republican governors competed with their colleagues to author innovative welfare reform or criminal justice proposals. Now, bad COVID policy is a point of pride and the path to influence. Takes a shot at Ron DeSantis, as I mentioned, Florida's governor, has made his better-than-known but still middling COVID record the centerpiece of his national appeal. He bucked the medical experts, making Florida an oasis of freedom, to use his phrase, 
but held his per capita death rate to 28th in the nation. Well, that's right in the middle. So is it because of the way Ron DeSantis has conducted himself? Is it because Florida was a hotspot early on? Um, you know, it's hard to pin down these. Is it because of all the uh, spring breakers going to Miami Beach to the point where the, the city of Miami uh, issued, you know, said stay away, issued an 8 p.m. curfew, had the police arrest a whole lot of people who were out there drinking, packed together in crowds? It's a complicated uh, subject. Now, Gerson refers to a, stu- uh, uh, a study by a Johns Hopkins University Center that looked at last year. And it said that um, by August 5th of last year, the relative risk of dying from COVID-19 was 1.8 times higher in Republican-led states than in Democratic-led states. Now, you can believe this stu- study. You cannot believe this study. But that's what it says. Uh, Gerson's conclusion, Republican governors tended to put a greater value on economic activity than preserving the lives of the elderly and vulnerable. And he finishes by saying, how is this performance by many Republican governors not discrediting, even disqualifying? Does it not concern people in GOP-led states that in a key moment of crisis, they were nearly twice as likely to die of COVID? Why does this not generate more outrage? Well, when, you know, pundits talk about where's the outrage, it generally means that, you know, the public by and large is not agreeing with them. Uh, but it's, a, it's from his point of view, it's a powerful column. You can read it and make up your own mind. Um, and it does occur to me that, you know, all states, all governors, regardless of party, had to do the balancing act thing. There is a real cost of shutting down businesses for an extended period of time. Unemployment, mental health problems, suicide, kids not going to school. You know, any governor, even the most liberal Democratic governor, even, you know, Gavin Newsom or Andrew Cuomo, had to weigh that against when is it safe to lift these restrictions, to allow schools to open, uh, to allow movie theaters to open, to allow restaurants to do more than offer takeout. These are really, really difficult decisions. Now, Donald Trump and the Republican Party, by and large, came down more toward the let's reopen. Remember, liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia, as Trump famously tweeted. So there was that. And on the other hand, even the libs, even the Dems, for example, Michigan's numbers going up now with Gretchen Whitmer is lifting restrictions, have to weigh the health dangers with the fact that you can't stay shut down forever. You just can't. It's a politically impossible thing to do, and it has its own set of costs. All right, number four. The Washington Post has a pretty well-reported piece about a problem at the Washington Post. Um, It involves a reporter named Felicia Sunmez, and she is a breaking news political reporter at the Post who has been at the center of a big controversy having to do with coverage of sexual misconduct issues. So the lead of the piece is, and this is new news compared to what I was reading about it yesterday, the Post has now reversed its own policy, barring this reporter, Felicia Sanmez, from covering sexual misconduct issues that was imposed because of her outspokenness being a victim, a past victim of sexual assault herself. And she went public on Twitter over the weekend. I was following this and I was saying, wow, this is really taking cojones because she, you know, she works at the paper and she's criticizing the paper for not letting her, as the way she frames it, do her job. The Post top editors now say she is free again to write stories about people accused of such misconduct. Now, before I go further, I have to say, you know, 
there's a line here, but it's hard to know where to draw it. So if you are a reporter and, you, and you've been the victim of a burglary, do you not get to write about burglary or crime? If you're a reporter who pays taxes and there's a tax cut proposal that would benefit you, do you have to disqualify yourself when you're just one of you know, zillions of Americans? It's hard to know. Why should there be extra restrictions on this reporter who happened to be and was quite public about the fact that she had been an issue of sexual assault. So the background here is during the Brett Kavanaugh uh, nomination hearings in 2018, um, post-editors told Felicia Sanmez that she couldn't cover Kavanaugh because, or stories about Me Too because of her past. This came up again more than a year ago when Kobe Bryant tragically died uh, along with his daughter and other people in a helicopter accident. This, I thought, was a little tone deaf, but she tweeted a link to a, a story detailing the rape allegations against him back in 2003, which he had denied. But, you know, was that the time to do it? It was then that Marty Barron, who was then the editor of the Post, put her on paid administration leave, saying her tweet displayed pure, poor judgment that undermined the work of her colleagues. But the Post did provide security for her and the cover the cost of her hotel room when her address was posted online and there were death threats and that sort of thing. Now this comes up again because she had to say that on the latest sexual harassment allegations against Andrew Cuomo and former governor of Missouri, Eric Greitens, who wants to run for another office, she says, it was humiliating to again and again have to tell my colleagues and editors that I am not allowed to do my job fully because I was assaulted. I believe it's important for you to know the Post decision on this matter has had negative repercussions for me personally in the past. It's the tortured explanations I have to give whenever there's breaking news on this topic and I'm not allowed to cover it. Uh, she went on to say that last time this came up, it led to a recurrence of the debilitating symptoms that followed after she reported her own assault. So the Post now putting out a statement saying, you know, we've decided that uh, these limitations are unnecessary, but the editor's not granting an interview to Paul Fari, the reporter who wrote this story, just standing by the corporate PR statement. All right, number five, and speaking of this, and I guess this is a bit of a segue, right? There is a new allegation against Andrew Cuomo, and it comes from a woman named Sherry Ville, V-I-L-L. Now, this is back in 2017. She's from the Rochester, New York area. She says that the governor came um, visiting her home after a flooding incident in that part of central New York. She says he held her hand, grabbed her face, and kissed her cheek twice without her permission in front of her family. And because this video, there's actually a picture of this, and it does look like Cuomo was being kind of aggressive. On the other hand, he's there uh, in his role as, you know, consoler-in-chief for New York after a disaster. He kissed her on the cheek. She now has hired an attorney, Gloria Allred, but she doesn't plan to sue. And she gives an interview and she says, I was holding my dog in my arm and I thought he was going to pet my dog, but instead he wedged his face between the dog and mine, and kissed me on the other cheek, which I, what I felt was a highly sexual manner. She said she was shocked. He kissed her again outside the residence. He said that he's Italian. That's what Italians do, kiss both cheeks. She was shocked and embarrassed. Um, Como also uh, told her, according to this woman, you're beautiful. I felt he was coming on to me in my own home. Now, his office put out a statement saying, you know, he was also, you know, hugging or shaking hands with men and kissing other people, and this is what he does, and that's the way he rolls. So add that to the uh, situation. 
allegations uh, facing Governor Cuomo. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has a follow-up. You recall the story about um, Andrew Cuomo granting special access to his relatives, including CNN host Chris Cuomo, his mom, other people with ties to him, back at the beginning of the pandemic to be able to get these special and very scarce COVID-19 tests, which actually showed that Chris Cuomo um, did have the virus, uh, as he reported on the air. Um, and there's a huge uproar about that. This was broken by the Post and the Albany Times Union. Well, now Washington Post has a follow-up interviewing um, several people with firsthand knowledge of these tests going on. Uh, and they say that some people with access to power, wasn't just his family, by the way, were able to largely bypass the overburdened resources available to the general public when the pandemic hit New York early last year. Now, state officials are disputing this. They say nobody was given special treatment. They said this priority testing was available to many New York residents involved in the pandemic response, members of the general public. You didn't have to have a connection. But these individuals, speaking on condition of anonymity because they feared retribution by Cuomo's office, are telling a very different story. They say, and these are people who were familiar with or working at these testing sites, that there was special treatment to given who were to people who were described as priorities, specials, inner circle, or criticals, according to five people, including three nurses, who described how resources were redirected to serve those close to the governor and how some of these other cases were fast-tracked. This included not only Chris Cuomo, but the uh, clothing designer Kenneth Cole, who is or was the governor's brother-in-law among those who benefited from this priority testing. Uh, one nurse, uh, quoted not by name, says, I'm trained that there is no such thing as preferential medicine. We don't say this person is more important, so their results are more important. That's just not fair. Yet here we have somebody who is being pushed to the front of the line for no reason. It was like, oh, your test matters. And we know why. It's because of who you are, not because of anything medical. So new problems for Andrew Cuomo, uh, who faces an impeachment investigation, who's facing many calls to resign. But you know what? There was a poll the other day uh, saying um, his approval rating in New York State was 53%. Now it's down like 10 or 15 points. I forget the exact amount. But he still is over 50%. So people who know the governor in New York, at least the majority of them, at least right now, they're concerned. They perhaps think as a matter of due process that there should be an investigation which is being conducted uh, by the state attorney general. Uh, they're saying they don't think he should quit yet, and a, major a bare majority still approves his performance. Reminds me of what happened during the Clinton impeachment, where, you know, Bill Clinton did something far, far worse. It's hard to compare, you know, toxic environment and all that, but Monica Lewinsky, uh, who he did have sexual relations with and lied about it. And yet, Paul showed, you know, people said, well, that's his personal failing, but I think he's a pretty good president. And that's the reason, in my view, he was able to survive impeachment, not letting him off the hook. I'm just telling you what the political situation was at the time back in 1998. A lot of history in this podcast today. Thank you for listening. I appreciate if you would subscribe here. You can get it on your Amazon device or on Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, any place you get your favorite podcast. And we'll see you all tomorrow, folks, with more buzzing. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.